Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Ever wonder what goes on behind the scenes at a high-end fashion show? Well, coming up, our producer Summer Evans finds out with backstage fashion photographer Robert Ferrer. Plus, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today features neo-expressionist Vando. But first, underground legend and first lady of the Dungeon family, Joy Gilliam, is headlining this month's Sounds Like ATL tomorrow evening at City Winery. The multi-talented soul and funk singer rose with Atlanta's burgeoning music scene in the early 90s. She has since amassed a cult following with hits like Lick, Freedom, and Sunshine in the Rain. Joy recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes and began by sharing why she decided to leave Nashville and make Atlanta her home when she was in her early 20s. Well, Atlanta is close to Nashville geographically. I think I kind of wanted to be close to home, probably uh somewhere deep down, but I also at that particular point in my life very much wanted to break away from Nashville and explore the soil. I had already met Dallas Austin about a year prior to moving to Atlanta. He is the mega music producer who discovered you. Discovered is uh, doing a whole lot of lifting. But yeah, we met. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean that as... A slight. <laughs> oh no, no, you're fine. I just had to. I just had to get that little bit again. But um, he absolutely was the, the the person who I was able to link with and be able to create some really incredible music moments with. And and I moved to Atlanta because at that time there was lots happening there. And and luckily for me, it wasn't so far from home. Hmm. Your debut album, The Pendulum Vibe, was produced with Dallas Austin. That album is unflinching, and it's called for political change and fight against racism. This was a strong introduction for you to the music industry. How does it feel to look back 28 years later and see how this album was so far ahead of its time. Oh, wow. Well, I I suppose at this point, it's a, a really satisfying feeling. I think at the time when I was creating, you know, any of my music, kind of as it still is now, as I'm creating, I don't necessarily know how it's going to land, how people will receive it, you know, if there will be, you know, any impact at all. And to see the the reverberation over the years, like it has, it's managed to stand. And it's meant a lot to a whole lot of people, which is uh, very, very special to me. We will not bow down to our racism. We will not bow down to injustice. We will not bow down to exploitation. I'm going to stay. 
I guess a more cynical way of viewing it might be to say there was still enough racism to be fought back then, too. And yeah, the cynical part is that absolutely it's always been there, whether it's front and center and everyone's talking about it or not. It still is, you know, consistently that big old nasty monster in the room. One of the songs on the album Freedom was remixed and featured in the soundtrack for the 1995 movie Panther. There were several big-name artists included in the remix, such as Aaliyah, Queen Latifah, TLC, and others. What were your initial thoughts seeing one of your early singles sung with this legendary group of black women for a powerful movie. Oh, wow. How I felt at that time is that anytime I'm asked, <laughs> anytime I'm asked this question, I always am just like, when I'm taken back to the moment, I, I really do have difficulty describing how I felt at that time. It felt like a, you know, like I was dreaming. Come and take a walk with me, close a walk with me, see what only I can see. This guy's check this. inside such giddy cartwheels and butterflies going on inside. <laughs> it was really, really fantastic and humbling and also uh, affirming. I think it was maybe one of my first times of feeling, you know, very much like what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, just being in the room with all those wonderful women and have them singing my song. Ah. Just, you know, still, even now, you know, so many years later, creeping up on 30 years later, you know, it still gives me that tremendous sense of uh, pride. Good. I read that funk singer Betty Davis was influential to your sound. Sadly, she passed away earlier this year. How did her music and voice influence you early in your career? Oh, wow. She, um, I was introduced to her via Fishbone, formally, specifically through Fish and mm -hmm. Norwood and John Bigham and Angela Moore, actually the four of them. And Fish had tapes of hers when we were at a recording session. The first song of hers that I heard was If I'm in Luck. I just might get picked up. And I had heard of her before, but had not heard the music. So everything was just sort of kind of legend, the things that I had heard previously, but I hadn't heard any of the music, didn't know anybody that had. And so they did. And uh, that when I first heard If I'm in Luck, it was like, uh, like a ton of bricks had hit me or like a missing link piece to something had you know been found. They were just so insistent that I listened to it. Like, you haven't heard it? You had, you know, it just found it so difficult to believe that I hadn't heard it at the time. And once I heard it, it was it was 100% transformative. Mm. Did you get to meet her? I did not get to meet Miss Betty, but I did get to communicate with her. And I was able to do some, a remark or line of notes of, the redistributed box set of a work that Lights in the Attic put out in the mid 2000s, um, which sort of helped with the spreading of the, the gospel of Betty. I think more people were able to, that sort of began a resurgence of people, you know, attempting to find her. Of course, I also, you know, any chance I'm given, I'm gonna sing her praises and shed some light on her genius 
So I, I sort of proudly took on that as I saw it almost a responsibility to uh, let people know, you know, about her and that women have, you know, been out here, you know, doing their very best in a world that continually tells them that they can't, doing their very best to be as free and as open and as receptive to the power that they have while they're here on this earth to create. Um, and that's a rare, a rare, beautiful example, you know, of that. Someone who was unbought and unbossed, you know, in ways. And I relate to that, related to that then in her and still relate to that very much all these years later. You are known as one of the originators of the neo-soul genre before Eric Badu and Jill Scott hit the music scene, and you have a very loyal fan base. Joy, when you were starting out, how did you stay true to your sound and style? Well, <laughs> I know it's such a, a direct and simple question, but I think for me, I don't know any other way to really be. I absorb and I, you know, take in things that I learn and that I really, you know, enjoy and dig. That's just the space that I want to exist in. You know, the things that I cleave to are things that expand me and things that I can learn from continually. And if I can't do that, then I'm just not drawn to it or don't want to be um, affiliated or next to it. And, you know, that feeling is so uh, prevalent at all times inside of me that I think that that's been a, a great assistant for me in being able to stay true to what I want to do, you know, regardless of uh, what the consequence of that may be, you know, to its glory or to its detriment. Well, you do not buy into structuring a brand for your sound. It's authentically you, and it crosses some genres, and the fact that it is quintessentially soul but encompasses more is mm. what makes it so great. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, I loved reading about your time as a model, and I loved <laughs> what you said about not wanting to be a mannequin. Would you tell us about your experience as the first black model to appear in a Calvin Klein ad campaign? Wow, I there was such an incredible experience, first of all. And again, one of those moments of feeling, you know, the butterflies and cartwheels in my belly as it was happening, but dually what was happening at that time. Uh, just with my experience of being on set, it became just very clear to me, you know, with how we were being communicated with. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the models um, that were there, you know, including an already very famous, you know, and on her way to being wealthy, Kate Moss. She was also being handled in that way. And I like it. The handling was just sort of um, talking at us. There wasn't really so much input about what we wanted to do. or I, I, I felt like we were just uh, not being regarded in a way. And, and there can be some other things you can get from, you know, a strong visual. And I understand the creative, you know, architecture around that and, and, and the importance of that. But how we were being handled is what struck me. And uh, I felt that we weren't being regarded as well as we should be being regarded. And that particular instance, you know, turned me away from wanting to be like a model or something full time. I thought that that was something I would really want to do like the whole time. It's pretty was flattering like, when you're asked. Right, it was great. You know, I wanted to do it. But the actual experience just made me feel like, oh man, like we don't, we're just kind of invisible with this sort of, you know, patch quilt presentation for another thing that's trying to be sold. 
And I just, I don't know, there was something about that that was just like, oh, I don't know about that for me, you know, I don't know about it. But the overall experience and what it um, ended up meaning to some people that encountered it in particular, lots and lots of young Black girls who, you know, are brilliant and audacious, but whose surroundings, you know, don't necessarily feed that or nurture that, were able to see something. It's one of those moments where representation can have an impact. It shouldn't on everything, but 100% it does have an impact. I mean, I I felt myself, I felt that I wanted to model because of how beautiful and powerful Iman looked when I was growing up. And it was a, one of those experiences that, that had a lot of reverb on it. So the fact that I wasn't necessarily drawn to it as a career didn't so much matter because the, the, the impact of, you know, what I did do was significant. And I'm, I look back on, you know, that also with a lot of, of fondness. And it was a, a really great pivotal moment for me as a young person. Am I quoting you correctly? You said, I want to be heard, not seen. Mm. <laughs> I pro- that sounds like something I would have said. <laughs> That's a long time ago. So <laughs> no, yeah, so you said, I want to be a mannequin. I want to be heard, not seen. So music was your calling. Yes, it was. More so. More so the medium. And, and now that I'm older, I don't necessarily restrict my views around things and not so narrow as they were. There's more wisdom in the eyesight now. So I wouldn't, as an artist, I won't so much say what I am or what I am not. But I'm a, you know, I'm a creative in the, in the truest aspect. So if it's expansion, if it's, a, if it's something that can be something that resonates with me and I feel like I would be a good portal for to expanding someone else, then I'm willing to do it. So now, you know, with modeling or whatever, any of the things, there are lots of things that I didn't necessarily think I wanted to do or that resonated with me when I was younger. And now they've sort of found me again. I take pictures now. I draw now. I paint now. I design and sketch now like there are things that I just didn't really do when I was younger that I do now and I identify with all of those aspects of me. It's funny how that happens. You can be so staunch around something when you're younger and feel very pointed about it, you know, and then with time, you just expand the view. I like what you said. Your eyesight has wisdom or there's wisdom in your eyesight more. Would you repeat that? I think I said there's more wisdom in my eyesight now. Yeah. The way I saw things before was you know, obviously more limited. I just didn't have quite as many rotations around the sun. <laughs> but now that I have more, the, the eyesight has with me. Yeah, there are definitely pluses that come with aging. Yes, there are. Would you tell us how you first got involved with the Dungeon family? I, you know what, Lois? I don't even know if I specifically remember. I just, it's kind of one of those situations where you kind of just feel like you always know somebody. I think I'm going to try to pinpoint it to having met them, a few of them, at Darp Studios as they were working on Outcast's album. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was Rico, it was Ray, it was maybe Rube, and maybe Outcast. Maybe they were there. Or maybe they weren't. See, fuzzy. I don't quite remember. <laughs> However, I do remember that they were working on the album and the Claire's Ball had already been out and they were trying to just get that album finished. And they may have been doing maybe Ain't No Thing But A Chicken Wing might have been what they were working on in the studio. And uh, I just remember walking in and it being super, super, super jamming. And them being like, oh, you're the girl from the Sunshine and the Rain video. We freestyle over the over the song. Oh, the wow. Band. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, that was kind of like our our first, you know, meet up. And from that point forward, we were just cool and, you know, became family and enjoyed working together and created some great stuff. I'm feeling that pressure. 
In your 2002 album, Star Kitty's Revenge, you wrote a sweet ode to your late father, Joe Gilliam, Mm. great NFL quarterback. The song is called Jefferson Street Joe. Yes. And it's the 18th song on the track of 19, the last being your four-year-old daughter singing her own song. That is so sweet. I mean, how can people not melt hearing that? Would you talk about putting her on after the song about your dad? Yeah, my my dad had passed away in 2000, on Christmas Day in 2000, suddenly. And that same year is the year that I was working on Star Kitty and, you know, uh, really kind of in the thick of creating it at that point. And Keepsaya was about, I guess she had the issues for. I think it says that on the album. I think it actually mm-hmm. called Keepsaya age four. Yes, yeah, she was four. So he had recently passed. And she was at the studio with me. I was there with. I think Leslie was there with me, great, wonderful engineer, Leslie Bradway, um, who makes pretty much all of my earlier stuff. And he sent her in there with the guitar because she would always, you know, she's with me. She's always had incredible rhythm. (laughs) She's always been drawn to, you know, music and performance and things like that. It's very natural when she was little. So she had the guitar and was kind of singing a little melody out there. And he sent her over there to the door. And so she came in like, do you want to play on this? Do you want to record, sweetheart? And she was like, yeah, I do. And so got her a little setup. She had the guitar and she just, you know, like Leslie went back out there and cut, you know, pressed to record. <laughs> and she did her thing. It was in one take. Um, <laughs> just kind of let her, you know, feel her way through it. And she laid one of the most perfect and awesome recordings in music history. Hi, everybody. I keep Saya. This is my mommy's album, Star Kitty's Revenge. I hope you like my mommy's album. I think it's very good. I have a song to close it. Here it goes. What does she do now? She is a fantastic vocalist and songwriter. She is an incredible creative with creative directing, um, with modeling, with model and confidence and walk coaching, movement coaching, designing. She's a fantastic and wonderful, wonderful creative child. My child, the young woman, and I just, I couldn't be more proud of her. Clearly, she had quite a role model in you. It must be very gratifying to see her following in your creative path. Joy, how have you seen or how would you describe the way Atlanta's music scene has evolved since you moved here in the early 90s? Oh, man. It is, I mean, it went from being, you know, a place that had to remind people about showing it some respect and, you know, reminding people that, you know, as Stack said, we have something, the South got something to say. Yeah. It went from that place to, you know, of a, eh, I don't know, to the absolute mecca and center of all things that have anything to do with, you know, the driving force of creativity in these times, you know, whether that be, you know, on scenes that are more underground or whether that be the absolute 
mecca of capitalism as it pertains to arts and entertainment. Now, from one end of the spectrum to the other, it is now known for that it's quite a, a thing to have, you know, witnessed from its very, very early beginnings. It's yeah. been 30 years, you know, at this point. I came to Atlanta in 92, 93. And so my relationship, you know, with it began at that point. So it's, it's quite a thing to see this just colossal evolution and placement in the, the pantheon of social arts culture. Yeah. Now you are headlining Sounds Like ATL tomorrow evening at City Winery. Can you tell us a few songs you're excited about performing? Oh, a couple of songs from the set list. Let's see. What will I give away? I'm actually (laughs) excited about a couple of mashups that I'm doing. I'll be using the the music of a couple of things and then sort of reimagining the melody and, and lyrics of other songs on top. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing a, a mashup of Dandelion Dust and I Believe. I'm looking forward to that. Listeners just have to show up to hear they the do. full range. They do, to hear the full range. I will also give this away. The the band, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to our band lineup. It's the incredible little John Roberts on drums. It is the awesomely, wonderfully bomb, bomb, bomb Deborah Killings on bass and vocals and the ever so funky and super bad David Wilde on guitar. So I'm really looking forward to jamming with them and our rockin' three-piece funk and soul musician Joy. She's headlining WABE's Sounds Like ATL at City Winery tomorrow evening. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our producer Summer Evans catches up with backstage fashion photographer Robert Ferrer. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it is great to have you along. So have you ever gazed at the glamour of fashion models on the runway and wondered what goes on behind the scenes? Well, backstage fashion photographer Robert Fair has seen it all, and his work showcases the chaos behind the curtain. This past January, Ferrer had an exhibition at SCAD Fash Museum entitled Backstage Pass, and the exhibition has since ended, but you can still see Ferrer's work on his website in his behind-the-scenes archive. City Lights producer Summer Evans caught up with Ferrer when he was in town, and they discussed his insider view of the fashion world. In the late 90s, you started out as one of the only people to go backstage of a fashion show and take photographs of the models and the chaos that was occurring behind the scenes. What inspired you to do this? Well, when I first started, I was actually shooting the runway. So I was at the end of the catwalk with many other photographers. And and that was wonderful. It was great. I, I, I loved doing it. But at a certain point, it wasn't really challenging anymore. And then one day I saw somebody disappearing off just before a show and, and disappearing behind the curtain, so to speak, down the runway and, and off where the, uh, the girls would come out. And I sort of was a bit curious and thought, oh, I, I need, to, need to see what's going on back there. 
And, uh, and so I, I ran along, had a look, and I, it's just this new world that opened up to me. It was incredible. Um, I think I've said many times, you know, you go back there as a photographer or somebody with an artistic eye and you just see creativity everywhere you look. So I ran back, got my camera, and basically stayed backstage from that point onwards. Um, I loved it. So it was a sort of a curiosity and a natural progression, I think, from, from the runway. I, I was fascinated by the fashion, but backstage I was actually able to get up close and personal, see it those few seconds before the editors might see it. And, uh, and obviously from a photographic point of view, um, I was able to document it in a personal way. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see it on the runway, but you're essentially taking a similar photograph to, to many other people, whereas backstage, everything you do, certainly at that point, was, was very individual and you could you can actually create something of your own style. I noticed there's like a mixture of playfulness from the models that you just don't get when you see them on the runway and they have to really turn it on and be serious and everything. You're right. I mean, it's it's possibly in the last few years, it, it's gone even more extreme that way with uh, girls being told to have no expression, walk fast, follow each other at exactly the same distance. And it, it's it's become a bit of, in some cases, a very automated. Robotic. Process. Yeah, robotic's a good word, exactly. I mean, in the earlier days, I suppose, before I ever heard of a fashion show, you know, they'd sashay down the, the runway. They might be introduced by the designer sort of saying, this is look number 71 on Sasha. And they, you know, wander in and out of the chairs and turn a little bit. And I believe that Chanel did something similar to that this season at the spring summer 2022 show um, with photographers around the catwalk as well, sort of harking back to, to the sort of 70s and 80s. And the girls then... I guess had a lot more personality and they would spin and, and interact with the audience. Um, from my time, pretty much, apart from perhaps a Galliano show or a Dior show, you know, the girls were fairly ordered and controlled's the wrong word, but you know, they were given instructions on, on how to how to behave. Of course, backstage, depending on what they're wearing uh, and depending on what show they were doing, the girls needed to have some character. And certainly when they got into those dresses, they took on a personality because, you know, the clothes are just so wonderful that you 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 feel, you know, you know how you feel when you get dressed into especially when you're going out. You know, you're gonna you you feel a certain way, you stand a certain way, you you know, you might look in the mirror and sort of turn your shoulders and look over your back and, you know, admire how this dress is floating out behind you. In many cases, uh, in the images, you know, there, there's a personality coming through or a persona, maybe the dress's persona coming through in the images. But certainly, certainly at those four design houses, you know, the girls would automatically have fun, in a sense. Is this why you wanted to exhibit photos from this era, which ranges from the late 90s to the early 2000s, because of the personality that's shown through in well, these photographs? I, you know, I think Sally Singer said it very well um, when she said it, it was a golden age, a sort of zeitgeist uh, for fashion. And, and also it's a vanished world because then it was a very private world. Very few people would, would see it. You know, the dresses, the designers, the hair and makeup, perhaps, uh, and a few photographers, not, not many, but now you know, that's gone and you're virtually seeing the clothes backstage before they're even shown on the catwalk. And in some cases, you know, they'll be, they'll be out there on, on social media so, so quickly. I love the idea of, of sharing these images which haven't been seen before. I mean, I've shot millions of images over the years. And, uh, you know, when I was working with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and British Elle, you know, they could only publish a handful. I mean, it's very expensive. You know, a page in a magazine costs a lot to produce. And between the adverts and, um, and, and the articles they have to write, you know, there aren't, sounds crazy, but there aren't loads of pages that they can fill with, with fashion imagery. You know, a magazine can only be so big. So I might, if I was lucky, get maybe a hundred, 70, a hundred images published each season. And this leaves tens of thousands of images left unseen, you know, sort of stuffed away in boxes. I mean, it's very organized, but, uh, but still, you know, they are in boxes. And uh, if we're not showing them in exhibitions and places, they're just going to stay in those boxes. That's really cool. I didn't even think about it, that these photos wouldn't have circulated through social media or been printed. So these are never before seen photos of backstage fashion shows. I wouldn't say they have all never been seen before, <laughs> but obviously they're in the books. 
but certainly the vast majority, I'd say 90% of the images that are out there have not been seen before in a wider environment than the books that we've recently published, yeah. Mm-hmm. What I thought was really cool was seeing these fashion shows from the early 2000s and how trends are so cyclical, you know, like we've come full circle with now it's trendy for color blocking and wearing jumpsuits and the knee-high lace boots. Was this intentional when showing the, these photographs from this era and how it is so similar to what's trending currently? Absolutely not. No, I think we were just going through and choosing what we felt was relevant and would work together and and what sort of attracted the eye so no there's no from from my point of view there was no educational purpose in that sense bearing in mind that the backstage my backstage career let's call it I stopped that in about 2012 and stepped away from the fashion shows at the moment I'm going back into it again um, we've been working quite a bit with Fendi recently, which has has been an incredible experience with Kim Jones. But in terms of looking in that cyclical way, no, I don't, from my point of view, it wasn't an intention, but certainly one of the one of the main reasons for getting these images out is to to share it with students and fashion lovers around the world and allow them to have a glimpse into the world that I was privileged enough to um to inhabit for a you know a good 15 years or so. Well, it is cool. For me, I found a connection because I have a jumpsuit very similar to the one I saw in the photograph. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's from 20 years ago. Very cool that I'm now wearing fashion very similar to that. (laughs) But what people need to learn as well, I mean, just taking that and twisting it around a little bit. I mean, I know obviously the the clothing that's shown in, in this show for the most part, you know, they're, they're very luxury items. Um, certainly in the case of McQueen, Galliano and, and D. You know, they're, they're, they're out of the price range of, of, of most people. Uh, Mark Jacobs is also obviously a very luxury label, but perhaps not quite at the price point of the others, especially, you know, as they're now, in many cases, museum pieces. But it just does go to show that people can recycle. You can buy nicely once. You can keep it, you know, for 10, 15 years. If it's in fashion this year and it sort of peters out, then maybe in three or four years time, it'll come back. So you don't have to go out and buy new, buy fast fashion. You know, you can actually build up a a beautiful wardrobe over the years and, and, you know, bring things back in when they come back into fashion or maybe bring them back into fashion yourself. You know, those lace up knee high boots you're talking about or your jumpsuit. (laughs) Perfect example. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Or you could raid your mother's closet. It's probably back in. (laughs) That's the best thing to do, of course. Very cool. So one of the more somber photos was of Alexander McQueen, who sadly died by suicide in 2010. And the photo you took, Robert, was one year prior. It's a very lively photo. He's wearing a purple bunny suit and his head mask is off and he's just like grinning ear to ear at a model and kind of like surprise model like hey it's me alexander mcqueen and she's looking back at him like oh my gosh um (laughs) when you were deciding on the photos you wanted to print for this show how did you feel when you looked back on that one i remember that moment really well i mean that was a show and i always get this wrong but i believe it was natural distinction unnatural selection and it was in Paris. It was a venue that uh, was the first time he'd shown in this particular venue. And as the girls walked up this ramp to the catwalk area, there was a big uh, earth being projected onto the wall behind them. And they were walking up through these stuffed animals. I mean, giraffes, lions, polar bears, and they were flanking the side of the runway. I guess the irony of him in his playful bunny suit uh, running up at the end of the show to take his bow with you know this funny bunny hat on or head on was you know a very strong message to to the world but the reason I wanted to include this is his fantastic smile I think many people have you know this is this is a designer who I met on many occasions backstage at his shows, occasionally at parties in in London around. But whenever I I saw him, he was obviously at his most pressured, um, you know, six months worth of creation. 
is about to be unveiled to the world. You got to get it right. Um, there are always challenges at, at shows, things going wrong backstage, last minute panics. So, you know, it wasn't a moment to, to, to be getting to know somebody. And he was always so focused on what he was doing and such a, a perfectionist for every detail. He would be on the clothes before they went out on the runway, making sure everything was perfect. Um, dresses backstage would be being stitched up until the last minute to get them just right and fitted to the girls. It was uh, a very, very intense atmosphere. And I think this for me just shows that joy, the elation, the relief, the, the happiness that he was feeling at that moment. And also I wanted to show that many people would see him as, I guess, an incredibly intense, maybe angry, maybe brooding person. But there's another side to him. Mm -hmm. And this is yeah. it. No, I really loved that photograph. It was, it was a, like you said, it was a beautiful side to see of him that we might not often see in like the normal photographs, so the posed ones, you know, for media conferences and that sort of thing. So exactly. I mean, the, the things you would see in the media, uh, which were far more posed, would be very intense, I would say. So this is just showing the, the yeah the lighter side of 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 uh, an Alexander McQueen that I witnessed. Mm. Robert, lastly, what do you want the students and those that come to the exhibit to take away from these photographs when seeing the other side of the models and the chaos that ensues backstage? Well, as I said before, I want them to see this this vanished or vanishing vanishing world that that I was fortunate enough to to roll around in for for a few years. I want them to see the beauty of the designs. I want them to understand in a way, especially the students, that you can't do these things by yourself, that it's all about teamwork. Um, you know, there were, there were sometimes large and sometimes very, very small but intense groups of people helping to create, you know, these wonderful experiences. Um, the show designers, the casting directors, all the people that you see in the background of these images, in many cases, are just as important as the, the subject. And that's, that's why I chose to photograph them in this way. So you can see what's going on in the background. You can see the chaos. You can see the intensity of the work that's going on. And in terms, you know, in my terms, you know, these photographs never would have been taken without or possible without the cooperation of, you know, the magazines that we were collaborating with, my assistants, my lighting director. Um, and, and from the, as I said, the designer's point of view, you know, the teams, the creatives, the hair and the makeup, the, uh, the hat designers, the jewelry designers, all these people that, that have come together, you know, in one place over a few days or maybe a few months to actually create this theatrical production, which has, you know, hopefully given joy to, to, to many thousands of people over the years. Backstage fashion photographer Robert Fairer speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. That interview was recorded this past January, but even though the SCAD Fash exhibition is over, you can still check out Fairer's work in the behind-the-scenes archive on his website, robertfairer.com. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words. Speaking of the arts, today featuring neo-expressionist Vando. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from local artists in their own words. My name is Vando, V-A-N-D-O is the spelling. The type of art that I create and do falls in a, a weird line, but basically a lot of folks uh, list me under, under expressionism, preferably neo-expressionism. I get compared to Basquiat a lot. I create from a uh, unique space when I create. I have no real true intent when I go. I really just enjoy the journey of creating. So a lot of times it does come out expressionistic and sometimes it comes out very abstract. It all depends on how the day's going. I got started in art in a very, very unique way. Um, I just recently picked up the brush five years ago. I did it because 
my youngest son started day trading at the age of 14. And he would stress out in school if he, you know, got a B minus or anything. So we need to come up with a solution to have him maintain whenever, you know, at $10,000 swings or things of that nature. So I was like, man, there's a thing called abstract, throw some paint on the canvas just so that it's a release and that we're not really trying to make anything but release. And when we sat down to do it, it, it actually caught me a little bit more than it did him. And I looked up and everybody in the room is looking at me like, wow. And for that little bit of time, time just disappeared. And it was just like, all of a sudden, that was just what I was, I realized that's what I was meant to do. As far as what motivates and inspires me to paint, um, it's really based on, you know, two things really. Um, the first is just being able to wake up and go outside and see life. You know, I, the fact that I entered the art game this at the latter part of my life, I kind of look at life in a different perspective. And it's so nice that art has helped change that perspective. So just to walk out and notice the way the sunshine reflects off a building or how shadows protrude into the street and things like that is all I need to be inspired. Plus, um, I'm a big fan of just conversating with people. Conversations inspire me to paint because the Virgo in me, you know, always wants to fix the, fix the problem. So it's always nice to um, paint a solution to everyday conversations. I and mean, that's the best way to, to you know, figure out those little ironies of people and stuff like that and, and portray them on canvas. I call ATL my home because I actually came down here to go to culinary school. Uh, I'm a French trained chef and after graduating college, I came down and decided like this is where I'm supposed to be. I just really, really, truly love the city. I've been here since 1991. So I'm, I think I'm unofficially a Georgian. <laughs> the city has a way of influencing the art that I do because of the energy, because I love the paint outside. So the different energy within the city is the, one of the main reasons I love just being, in, being here and, and, and painting within the city so much. As far as where I like to go see art in the city, just the normal places like everybody else. I hit all the fun galleries and all the openings run by the high and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I love a lot of the true stuff as far as graffiti and all the different things and just all the weird little nuances that go on in the city. The city has a lot of great artists. So there's technically great art everywhere within the city. So it's not really hard to find, you know, you just have to go out and just look for it one day and you'll run across a lot of beautiful art and that's what's like really cool for me, so. If you would like to see a lot of my art, you can go to vandodavis.com, that's V-A-N-D-O, davis.com, or you can go to my Instagram under vandoart, V-A-N-D-O-A-R-T, art at Instagram and keep up with me there. Vando and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Vando's work is on our website, wabe.org. Finally today, a reminder for you that WABE's Sounds Like ATL concert is tomorrow night at City Winery. This month, we are featuring Joy. Opener will be Ansley Stewart. So let's close out today with a little bit of joy. This is I Love You Forever right now.
been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Pod Save America's John Lovett stops by ahead of their Saturday show at Cobb Energy Center. Plus, we'll blast off with the Illuminarium's newest exhibition, Space. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.